Welcome to the Faith Cup Podcast. We are glad you are here today. May God bless you in order for you to be a blessing to those around you. Thanks, Anthony. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. I add my welcome and also I want to dismiss the kids. Um, who It's time for them to go to kids worship. Uh, so kids, you can head to the back. Your leaders will meet you there. Uh, kids will be coming back at the end of the service to join us as we wrap up, so parents be prepared to receive them back as well. Uh, you're always welcome to stay with us. Uh, we also have the cry room, which is down the hallway that way, uh, where we live stream the service uh, for people who need a, a more quiet place to go. We also have the family room across the lobby that way, uh, so we have some options for families, but uh, kids are always welcome to be here with us uh, too. Uh, this congregation is uh, a friendly, generous, loving congregation. It was a joy to uh, be over in Yakima yesterday. Uh, Dean and Abby and Lydia jumped in the car with Tammy and I, and we headed over for sharing the harvest apple packing with uh, several others of you in the room. Uh, it was a fun intergenerational time to be together to pack all the apples that you probably saw as you came in. So if you ordered apples, you can pick those up and take, take them home. Uh, we were told that through the Sharing the Harvest uh, ministry, uh, we have participated in providing training uh, and new micro-business startups for 5,388 people so far and counting. So praise God for all the work that uh, we're doing around the world, and we get to enjoy the wonderful apples from our uh, apple growers in Washington. Uh, also, if you've been with us for the last couple months, you know that in September, uh, I shared this sense that I feel like uh, this is going to be our year of beyond belief, that uh, our God is able to do far more than we could ever ask for or imagine, and that uh, next June, when we're at our semi-annual meeting and we're looking back on this year, there's going to be multiple things that we're going to be able to look back on and go, oh my goodness, we never could have believed that God was going to do this in our midst. And then if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you know we had a congregational meeting. We came to you all and said, we have some emergency uh, building maintenance needs. Uh, our building maintenance fund has been drained. We don't have any money left. We have a little bit of savings that we can tap into that covers the need, but we'd, have, we'd love to not have to do that. So if we could come together as a faith family and figure out how to make this happen, uh, we would really love that. The need was $46,500. Um, within the first three days, we had $10,000 come in. Within the first week, we had $16,000 come in, and then we received a single check for $46,500, right? As of today, the total giving is up to $79,220. That's almost a 100% increase over our need, and if that is not beyond belief, then I don't know what is. Now, I share this because God is, uh, is a good God, and He obviously is blessing us through the generosity of His people, and I, I, I celebrate this number not to say that uh, for those of us who haven't given, because Tammy and I are in that category, our, our intention is to still give, but we haven't had the chance yet 
don't not give because the need has been met because that was just the emergency need, right? The need for our facilities and for upkeep of our property and for the ministries of our church are, are uh, more than we could even handle. So if God has prompted you to continue to give to this uh, need, don't hesitate. Be a part of this beyond belief blessing that God is inviting us to experience together. Uh, we had two gifts of $100. We had five gifts of $500. We had eight gifts of $1,000. We had one gift of $2,000, two gifts of $5,000, a gift of $10,000, and a gift of $46,000, $500. So you guys are, are doing an amazing job, and God is good. And I would just encourage you to, if you haven't had a chance to jump in on this yet, be a part of what God is doing in our, play, in our uh, midst and uh, go ahead and contribute to the building fund. Let me pray for us before we jump into Daniel chapter 4, and then we're going to continue with exploring the ways that God is inviting us to uh, explore uh, the ways that He wants to do uh, things in our life that are beyond belief in more than just financially, uh, but relationally and spiritually and even in our world and in the society around us. Would you pray with me? God, we are humbled by how great you are and how good you are at the same time. We are thankful that you are a God who blesses us and who is always at work for us on our behalf, even in those times when we might not be aware of how you're working or the direction that you're leading us. We come in faith knowing that you have a plan and that you are wanting us to understand that you have a desire to work with us and for us and to see our good, even as you reveal your glory. So speak to us again through your word today, and in the stories of the book of Daniel, would you allow us to see ourselves, as well as your hand at work in our lives, as we can be encouraged again as people who are also living in the midst of a hostile world, to learn how to trust you in new ways, and to put our faith in the one who can do what no man can do, but can truly lead us to experiences of life that are beyond belief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we turn to chapter 4, uh, chapter 4 begins with a, a new and a somewhat surprising, I would suggest, decree from King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. Beginning in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in his own um, words to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, his decree says, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure, he says, to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Lofty words from the king of Babylon. Now after Daniel uh, being able to miraculously interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue with the head of gold, even after uh, you know, the king didn't tell him what the dream was, but he made Daniel kind of first tell him what the dream was and then also interpret it for him. And then after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were miraculously able to survive the fiery furnace and to come out without even the scent of smoke on them, you would think that that would be enough for the king to, to, to offer such lofty words of praise to the most high God, right? 
But he goes on to tell the actual story that finally led him to make such an amazing declaration. And he says that I, in verse 4, Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And we're not going to have time to read the whole chapter, but he goes on uh, to talk about uh, how, as with the first dream in chapter two, he, he calls all of his wise men from Babylon, uh, the magicians and the enchanters, the astrologers and the diviners to come and interpret his dream for him. And they're all kind of dumbfounded. They're like, gosh, King, we have no idea. And he even told them what the dream was this time, and they still can't figure out how to tell him what it means. And so, of course, he goes, well... Yes, I got to go to Daniel again, right? So he has Daniel come. And of course, Daniel comes and, and Daniel listens to the dream. Uh, and, and Daniel says, uh, or he says in verse 9, I said, Belteshazzar, which was his Babylonian name that he gave to Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, now this is an interesting phrase, right? Because he's not saying the spirit of the most high God is in you. He still has this kind of syncretistic mindset that, yeah, he understands that the most high God of Daniel is this powerful God, but, but he's one of the gods. He, he can fit him into the pantheon and, and consider that he, he's, he's one of those things in the world that he needs to be aware of, but, but he's kind of put him on this level playing field with the other gods of, of Babylon, right? I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And no mystery is too difficult to you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. And then in this dream, he, he sees this huge tree that fills the whole land, right? It, it reaches to the top of the sky, and it's visible from the ends of the earth. And, and all of the, the animals of the world find shelter under its branches. And all of the birds of the world find nesting in its, uh, uh, in its branches. And uh, the fruit uh, feeds the whole world. It's kind of this cosmic tree of life, right, that, that feeds the whole world. But then a messenger comes from heaven and commands this tree to be cut down and its branches trimmed and its fruit scattered and nothing but the stump remains and the roots in the ground and the stump is bound by, by these bands of iron and, and bronze. Kind of this weird, mysterious dream that has him a little nervous because somehow we probably assume he understands there's something related to his kingdom there, right? In verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So he said to the king, Oh, so the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. He's trying to put Daniel at ease. Don't worry, you know, it's, it's going to be all right. And Belteshazzar answered, Oh, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its tops touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. And then jumping to verse 31, he says, This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. 
Seven times will pass for you by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel's like, hey, you know, it might not be too late. Uh, obviously, there's some kind of sense that Nebuchadnezzar is continuing to use his power and his authority to abuse and oppress the people under his rule, and his government is not a very kind one. Uh, and, and so God is not looking favorably on Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, and so he's giving this judgment against the king. And so Daniel's like, gosh, you know, if, if you repent, it might not be too late. But it goes on in verse 28, and it says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later it was when the dream came true. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built? As the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty... Even as the words were on his lips, it says, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. In verse 33, it says, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And then it talks about how for the, the seven times, now most scholars suggest it means seven years, but in the story it says seven times, and so we're not sure exactly what the amount of time that, that Nebuchadnezzar seemingly kind of went insane. He lost his mind. He lived in the field like a wild animal, and he ate the grass of the field. Um, but it was this godly number seven. It was the right amount of time. It was the complete time that God had ordained for him to experience this humiliating loss of control in his life that forced him to, to live like a wild animal and to lose all of the accoutrements of his power and his wealth and his kingdom and to be uh, humiliated in front of all of his people. And then in verse 34, it says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. And that, that raising your eyes towards heaven is, a, is an image of finally humbling yourself and, and, and acknowledging your submission to, to God. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My adversaries and nobles sought me out, uh, my advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. It's another amazing story in the book of Daniel, right? 
And while there are likely many different lessons and takeaways that that we can draw from this story, the main question we need to start with, uh, especially when when we get into these kind of fanciful, wild stories that seem almost kind of beyond what might be realistic for us, is how would those who first heard this story interpret it? What did it mean for those for whom it was written? And then out of that context, how do we then try to attempt to find application for our lives today? And scholars suggest that we can see clues in the story here that help us to understand that, that we identif- what we identified at the very beginning of the series of Daniel, in that in many ways the stories of chapters 1 through 6 of the book of Daniel can really be considered as part of the larger compendium of wisdom literature of the Bible. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In the experience of King Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 4, if you think about it, you might be prompted to to think of the story of Job, right? Another key wisdom book where Job lost all that he had had and he suffered greatly for a, a season, but then everything that he had had was restored to him. And the whole point of the, the book of Job is, is, is that we as human beings on this side of heaven don't have the wisdom or the knowledge to question God and what he does, but true wisdom comes only from him. Or we might also be prompted to think of a recurring biblical image that, that we see coming back in and in throughout the Bible, and that's the image of the tree of life, right? The, the tree of life imagery takes us all the way back to the beginning of the story of the Bible in Genesis with Adam and Eve in the garden, and, and they're, they're presented with, with all of the trees of the garden from which they can eat the fruit. And, and, and even the tree of life is there. And it's the tree of life that gives them sustenance and gives them uh, eternal life. And there's no death happening in, in paradise, right? But there's, there's one tree that they're commanded to not eat from, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life... Uh, was set in contrast to this, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And some scholars have suggested that what we see happening in the story of the garden is that, that in Adam and Eve's choice, they, they made a choice for, for human knowledge over godly wisdom. And that the tree of life represents the source of, of God's wisdom for us that, that leads us to the true understanding of where we find the meaning and purpose of life in this world. But, but given the option uh, for us as human beings, uh, we, we don't want that godly wisdom. We want to choose worldly knowledge and human knowledge and things that give us the power and control to, to manage our own lives, to become the kings and the gods of our own dominion so that, so that we can kind of say what we want to do and who we want to be and then we can manage and control our lives apart from God. And so we can kind of see maybe here in the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life is already there's this preference for for what we can do with our own strength rather than choosing to, to rely on God for what only God can do. And they point out how wisdom itself in the book of Proverbs is is personified as a tree of life. Proverbs 3.18 says, She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. To those who hold her fast, those who hold her fast will be blessed. One scholar said, What if the problem of our human condition is not that we valued knowledge while God sought to keep us in the dark, 
by preventing us from eating of that tree, which is kind of how that story might read. You know, it's like, why would he prevent us from eating from that one tree? It seems kind of restrictive, God, right? You don't want us to have knowledge? To what extent was the story of humanity been filled with the times when our knowledge has been to our downfall because we valued human knowledge over divine wisdom? See, unfortunately, I think too often as human beings, we tend to ignore the wisdom that God has already revealed, the, the wisdom that God has made abundant through his word, and that God over and over again has said, this is the path to life. These are the things that make for God's blessing. These are the things that lead to wholeness and health and happiness in life. But we want to ignore that wisdom and to seek to take the fruit of knowledge and our own power, which ultimately leads us to, to our own kind of catastrophic experiences like Adam and Eve, where all the things that we thought we could build for ourselves and all the hopes and dreams that we thought we could manufacture come crashing down around us because we just don't have the wisdom or the power to maintain them like we thought we could. And the things we thought were going to make us happy only leave us feeling empty and disappointed in the end. Among the most painful results for Adam and Eve is that they had to leave the paradise of the garden and the way back to the tree of life was barred from them forever. And yet, as we've seen so far in Daniel, in order to find hope in a hostile world, wisdom is required. What we're seeing in the story of Daniel is that wisdom is the way that one learns to live in the midst of the exile in a hostile culture. But wisdom, we discover, doesn't come from the world around us. It can't come from the world. It doesn't come from what we can know or from what we can do or what we can produce in our own strength as human actors on the stage of life. Behind everything that we see and experience, we are learning from the book of Daniel, there's this larger reality that exists. There's a greater power at work in this world than we realize. There's a source of wisdom for living that is available to us, but we first have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. The larger context of Proverbs 3 says, beginning in verse 13, Blessed are those who find wisdom. Those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. You see, God continually tries to remind his people over and over again, not only in the book of Daniel, but throughout the scriptures, that real wisdom for living, real power in life in this world, always have a heavenly origin. No matter how things appear in the world around us, no matter how things appear in your life today, no matter how things are feeling in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, God is still in control. And there is wisdom that God has for you to navigate the situation in which you find yourself if you're willing to have ears to ear and eyes to see. So what's going on in Daniel 4? 
I want to suggest for us there's two key takeaways for today. First, as a prime example of the wisdom saying pride goes before the fall, we can hold up Nebuchadnezzar as exhibit A, right? <laughs> Proverbs 16:18 also says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And so we can be reminded, obviously, this is probably the surface level lesson that we take away from Nebuchadnezzar's story and his experience, that in our own hubris and in our own arrogance, and if we become prideful as human beings, we can neglect the larger reality of God's power and plan in, in our lives, and we can find ourselves unexpectedly at times on the life-sucking, joy-killing, sanity-sapping side of life in this world. But more than a moral warning, I'd like to suggest for us today is the second takeaway that is really the proper lesson for Daniel 4, for people who find themselves being abused and oppressed by a hostile culture and are not typical kings of empires with wealth to to spare and all of the, the blessings and the fame and the glory that go along with living at the pinnacle of human society. But but Daniel 4 is a message for you and for me. Who may be wondering about whether God is really present in your life today. And God really is active. And God really has a plan to bless you in the midst of where your life is today. Who, 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 who obviously, when we look around the world and we see evil leaders and, 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 and abusive bosses and systems of government and power at play like Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon who seem to go from success to success and continue to succeed and go from power to power. Uh, how is it possible that God has a plan for us and and that we don't want to look to the powers of the world and the ways of the world to say, maybe we need to get in on some of that. And Daniel comes along and we see the story of Nebuchadnezzar and God wants to remind us that that the greater challenge is rather than to be tempted to become jealous of the, the world around you that seems like it's succeeding where maybe you're failing, that seems like it's getting in on the blessings of the world where maybe you're lacking. If you put your trust in God and you believe in the power of the Most High and that God has a plan and God is at work, that he is present, that he is active, and he is working on your behalf, that even when even people seem uh, around us seem to be prospering, even maybe at our expense, God's justice is faithful and true, and we can rely on his timing to be the one to rescue us and to prosper us when he sees fit. But man, that's hard to trust when you're in pain and you're waiting for that day to come, Right? Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Anybody ever been there? (laughs) To what extent, brothers and sisters, living in the wealthiest, most prosperous nation that ever existed on the planet, 
Do we knowingly or even unknowingly envy the arrogant when we see the prosperity of the wicked? And to what extent do we need to acknowledge perhaps that the envy of the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked has even influenced the way we think about and do church? And what does a prosperous church mean? What does a prosperous church look like? And maybe God is inviting us to tap into the wisdom of Scripture and the wisdom of heaven rather than the wisdom of the world to redefine what the future of the church might look like here at Faith Covenant and in the world around us in the season ahead. But it's hard because he goes on in verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. <laughs> right? Evil people, wicked people go from success to success, and they have you know, cars and boats and uh, planes that they fly around the world, and they live these glorious lives. And, and um, don't we want to get in on a little of that? And gosh, maybe if we could do it for Jesus... then it'd be okay, right? You see, I think from our limited human perspective, it can be easy to think that we have become powerless in the midst of the evil forces that are at work in a world that is beyond our control. And, and, and that the world might be passing us by and that if we don't get in on the gravy train, we're, we're going to miss what, what the blessings are that are out there that we have to offer us. But the story of Daniel invites us to re-examine our own circumstances and to trust in the sovereignty of the God who has revealed himself over and over again throughout history and throughout his word that he's at work in the world even though it might not seem like he's in control. And right here in Daniel 4, we're invited to remember that even though those who are evil and don't follow God's ways, might seem to prosper and find advantage in the world. Nonetheless, we see in the very conclusion of the chapter that the main point of the story here in uh, chapter 4 is revealed in verse 37, where Nebuchadnezzar himself confesses, everything God does is right. All his ways are just. And even those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Do you believe that? Can you build your life on that as a truth? Everything God does is right. All his ways are just. And even those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Because brothers and sisters, that is wisdom that brings hope in the midst of a hostile world. Ultimately, what we learn from Daniel and from the Bible as a whole is that wisdom comes only as a gift from God. To understand the truth of that statement that we just read, but to be able to apply it in our lives as, as a foundation for living only comes from the wisdom that God reveals to know that that's a true statement because of who God is in our lives. 
You can only bank on that truth because you know that God. If God is a propositional truth that, that yeah, he's one of those pantheon of gods and, 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 and there's wisdom in being a Christian and you can have that, but, but you also kind of want to dabble in some of the other things and you want to hedge your bets and, and get in on some of the wisdom of the world, that, that statement's not going to really you know, do it for you in the long run. The wisdom that comes from God is designed to help us to understand that the works of God are the very things that we're supposed to build our life on and to build our trust in, that no matter how things seem in the moment, we're going to trust in his ways and that his blessing is what's going to come through in the end. And then we see in the New Testament, right, how we can almost contrast the, 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 the character of Nebuchadnezzar with, with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Right? Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Right? The, 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 the kind of, of character that Nebuchadnezzar claimed to be, kind of a godlike figure in the world. Uh, here Jesus is, who is in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in various other places, the cross is referred to as a tree. And the very cross that was the implement of death for those who have their faith in Jesus, has become the very tree of life. See, the wisdom of God that in the Old Testament is personified in the tree of life, in the, very new, in the New Testament is taken up in the person and the work of Christ himself. He is the living wisdom of God. He is the living word of God, the logos of God who has come in the flesh to model for us what, what a true, wise life looks like, who, who is able to live in obedience in a way that Adam and Eve never were, and that you and I continue in following in their footsteps are not able to do as well. And in his living a righteous life and to giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins is the one who is finally able to open the way back to the tree of life that had been barred in the original fall in the Garden of Eden. And so when Jesus the Messiah came, he demonstrated an unswerving reliance on the wisdom and the power of God to direct his life and to guide his steps so that we now can follow in his footsteps and learn what it means to live life not in our own wisdom and our own strength or to see the blessings of the world, but to truly live from the wisdom that comes from God through the power of the Holy Spirit moment by moment, day by day, in, in, in this life and for eternity. And so it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus himself that, that he becomes the source of life for us as we open our hearts to follow him as our new tree of life, the new source of wisdom as we follow him as his disciples. So much so that if you look to the very end of the story too, right? We went to the beginning in Genesis. If you go to the end of the story in Revelation, you realize that the tree imagery comes back again, right? Right? Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat 
of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You see, the tree of life appears again as a feature of the very center of God's restored creation. This new tree is described as prominently sitting upon the river that flows from the throne of God that goes out for the healing of the nations. Uh, 22.2, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in its seasons, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You want to solve what's going on in Israel and Palestine today? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it's not solvable with the wisdom of this world. There's nothing that we can do this side of heaven other than, than the leaves and the fruit of the tree of life, which is Jesus himself who gave his life for the healing of the nations. Those in the new heaven and the new earth are the ones who will enjoy the fruit of this tree for all eternity. In Revelation twenty-two nineteen, it says, If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Because in the end, it's the person and the work of Jesus himself that is the ultimate source of life. It's in Jesus that we see the rift between humanity and God ultimately healed. That's the, the amazing reality of the incarnation of God in Jesus. And that the fact that he is the God-man is that in him, God and humanity coexist without separation. And so it's only in Christ that we now find our reconnection to God. And so it's only in living out of the wisdom that Jesus provides through the Holy Spirit that we begin to find the way back to the source of life that God had originally intended when he created us. So for us, the new tree of life serves as a reminder that God's purposes, even in this life, as we await for that final consummation of his ultimate kingdom, that, that the, his plans won't be thwarted, that the tree that was lost will, is replanted, that the creation that he made will be fully restored, and that even now we can begin to have a taste of what those blessings will be and participate in bringing them about. And so for, the, for us today, as we kind of wrap up, maybe the question that we need to wrestle with, if we really try to be honest with ourselves as we reflect in this moment, and maybe as you reflect on your life in the days and in this week ahead, as you're hoping for the, the, the blessing and the fruitfulness and the success of your life this week, Think about all the things that you're hoping for, the things that you're longing for, the things that you wish would happen, the things that you, you hope other people will, will do around you even. To what extent are you looking with jealousy at the seeming success of others? And to what extent are you seeking the wisdom of God for your answers and your direction and how you can pursue those things in your life? Because it's so easy to look for the ways of the world and forget that we have the, the ultimate source of wisdom that has been opened to us through Jesus and the power of the Spirit waiting for us to just get on our knees and come to Him. 
To what extent have you been relying on the ways of this world and the knowledge that you've accumulated and the skills that you've developed in your human strength and in trying to do it yourself have neglected the supernatural power of God to be able to do things that no man could do but can do a miraculous work in your life or in your relationships today? Because I believe, brothers and sisters, that if we want to see a year that will take us beyond belief. It's going to require us to give up our trust in the things of this world and to throw ourselves wholly back on the mercy and the grace of the God who gave his life so that we might have life because he wants to have us, have it in abundance. But we have to go to him for our wisdom and our strength and trust that when we do, he will provide the answers. But it'll be in his way and in his time. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith Cove podcast. Our music was written, performed, and produced by Adam Johnson. For more information about our church community, visit faithcovesumner.com. Until next time.